And now, Veep Thoughts by Kamala Harris. I've actually asked my team to do a Venn diagram. I love Venn diagrams. <laughs> I just love Venn diagrams. You know, the three circles, right? Sometimes there are more. This has been Veep Thoughts by Kamala Harris. Stu does America. Unfortunately, it's not Stu does Venn diagrams. By the way, normally there's two circles in a Venn diagram. There can be more, though, so Pamela was kind of right. BlazeTV.com slash Stu is the place to go to subscribe to Blaze TV. Use the promo code Stu to save 10 bucks. If you're watching on YouTube, like the video right now. We'd really appreciate it. Brian Riedel is going to join us today to make us cry about the overwhelming national debt. I've got a brand new segment to premiere. We'll uh, give you that here in a little bit as well. But we start by doing the speed bump Constitution. Ah, yes, the Constitution. You love it. You love it so much, don't you? We certainly don't seem to act like we enjoy it anymore. At least in Washington, that doesn't seem to be the case. Biden has pardoned thousands of people convicted of marijuana possession under federal law. He just did this by an edict, just did it. Just pardoned thousands of people. Now, we don't know all the details of this quite yet, but here's the thing. If he did it the correct way, the way he was supposed to, it actually is constitutional for him to pardon a bunch of people. In fact, the pardon power that he has is like the most king-like uh, power our founders put in the constitutional authority of the executive branch. We saw uh, Donald Trump pardon a bunch of people. We've seen every president pardon a bunch of people. When you do it like this, it's a, it's a little weird because you're not even doing it to individuals. You're just saying everyone convicted of this crime, you're really just over, basically overturning law. So there could be some problems with this. But generally speaking, the the power of the president to pardon people is almost a king like power. It's almost straight out of the monarchy. That's where that ends, though. You don't just get to do this for every issue you care about. You can pardon people from certain crimes. You can't just pass any law that you want to pass. And there's a new thing that the left is doing, at least more frequently now than they ever have, which is this idea that you step in and you go through a process, even when you know something isn't constitutional, you do it anyway, and then you just see what happens in the courts. The latest example of this is DACA. Now, let me remind you of DACA. This is, of course, the immigration program we've talked about so many times over the years. This is one of those situations that fits this perfectly, and it's one of those situations where the Constitution is treated like a speed bump. We're going down this road, there's going to be a couple of speed bumps. We might need to slow down here and there, but we're going no matter what. No matter what the Constitution says, we're going to our destination. The speed bump of the Constitution is supposed to be treated much differently. But in this situation with this administration and the last, uh, the one uh, before Trump, the Obama administration is where this particular issue started. It's been going on for quite a while. Let me remind you, and I'm going to give you the kind of the three-step process here. Step one, acknowledge that what you want to do is not legal or constitutional. Surprisingly, the left does this more often than you'd think. Barack Obama, back in the day, responding in October 2010 to demands that he implement immigration reforms unilaterally, Obama declared, quote, I am not king. I can't do these things just by myself. He was right. 
In March 2011, he said, quote, with respect to the notion that I could just suspend deportations through executive order, that's just not the case, end quote. He was right. In May 2011, he acknowledged that he couldn't just bypass Congress and change the immigration law myself. That's not how democracy works. Well, yeah, Barack, you were right. You were right on the money when you said that. Unfortunately, it didn't hold all that long, and DACA was implemented. In fact, even the Biden White House prepared to take executive action to protect DACA dreamers. So we had this long stretch where everybody knew, including Barack Obama, that DACA was not a constitutional program. They put it in anyway and then rolled their dice in the courts. What happens at the end of this story? Well, an appeals court says DACA is illegal, keeps the program alive for now. And of course, 600,000 people who took advantage of this program are not going to be deported now. They've already they've already been implemented in our society. We couldn't possibly do that. You get the setup here. You know something is illegal. You know something is unconstitutional. Unconstitutional. You do it anyway, and then you wait to see what the courts will do. Let me give you another example. The eviction moratorium. Um, now, the eviction moratorium is a fascinating one. They said they, they couldn't do it. It was illegal. Um, but, you know, it was in the middle of a crisis. No one really pressed them on it. Eventually, it made its way up the courts right near the end of the program. And so I think it was Kavanaugh said, hey, look, uh, this, there's a lot of questions here. This does not look legal, uh, but let's just wind this thing up uh, here by the end of, the, uh, uh, by the end of uh, this term here. We don't want to extend this thing. Well, Joe Biden decided to look at that information he got from the Supreme Court and address it. Here's what he said. Well, look, um, the courts made it clear that the existing moratorium was not constitutional. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't stand. And they made that clear back in, I guess, July 15th or July 18th. So how, what would you do with that information? You got that information in July. You go through August. What do you do? the Biden administration issues a new eviction moratorium after a federal ban lapsed. He just did it anyway, even though they told him he couldn't do it. It wasn't constitutional. It wasn't under the authority he tried to do it. So what happens? Well, of course, the Supreme Court ends Biden's eviction moratorium. So what happens here? It's an interesting pattern. Let me give you another example. The national vaccine mandate. National vaccine mandate. Well, here is Joe Biden talking about whether there would be or should be a national vaccine mandate. Watch. No, I don't think it should be mandatory. I wouldn't demand to be mandatory, but I would do everything in my power. Just like I don't think masks have to be made mandatory nationwide. He doesn't think it should be mandatory. Shouldn't be mandatory. Okay. And everyone kind of knew that it wasn't constitutional at the time. He didn't even think it should be done. But then again, Fast forward just a little bit. U.S. sets January 4th vaccination deadline for big private employers. New guidance will cover 84 million workers who will be required to be fully vaccinated or tested weekly. Well, what happened with that? The same pattern. Supreme Court blocks Biden's virus mandate for large employers. Do you get sort of the pattern here a little bit? You say you got to want something, but you realize you can't have it in the current system. Then you do it anyway, and then the courts overturn it. How about the student loan fiasco? This one is particularly annoying and the one that's still going on to this day. Let's go back to Nancy Pelosi talking about whether you can just kind of like, what if you just say no one has to pay any of the loans back? Uh, What if we do that? Here's Nancy Pelosi talking about it. 
people think that the president of the United States, is this more on the subject than you ever want to know? Will you let me know? People think that the president of the United States has the power for debt forgiveness. Hmm. He does not. He can postpone. He can delay. But he does not have that power. That would that has to be an act of Congress. Yes, that is right. People do think that the president has that power, but he does not. Congress has that power. Congress, which, by the way, is the supreme uh, 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 for, uh, branch of government, more more powerful than uh, the presidency, even though that's not how we treat it these days. That's the way the country was set up. And, of course, we have now all these other crazy organizations and cabinet positions and big government apparatus that the president gets to push around. So it sometimes seems like he's more powerful. But he was so powerful, he went to his own Department of Education and said, hey, can I do this? Can I just, I don't know, wipe out the debt for everyone? Here's what they said. For these reasons, we believe the secretary does not have statutory authority to provide blanket or mass cancellation, compromise, discharge, or forgiveness of student loan principal balances and or to materially modify the repayment amounts of terms thereof, whether due to the COVID-19 pandemic or for any other reason. Got it? They knew they couldn't do this. They knew it was unconstitutional. Yet, what happened just a little bit later? Fact sheet. President Biden announces student loan relief for borrowers who need it most. Now, what's fascinating about that is as soon as this went on, we all knew the end of the story, right? We just went through multiple examples. You say you want something, you realize you can't have it, you do it anyway, then the courts turn it over. That's the process, right? So where were we on that process? They said they couldn't do it. They did it anyway. Now it's time for the courts to step in. Well, they're learning and they're adapting now. Multiple lawsuits were filed and they just changed the program on the fly. Biden administration scales back student debt relief for millions amid legal concerns. What happened? Well, even more lawsuits were filed. Republicans filed multiple lawsuits to block Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. Latest one, I think, was filed yesterday. Charles C.W. Cook of National Review broke this down really well. And this is a real problem. He called it a constitutional crisis. And I think he's right. We're getting to this point here where the, the executive branch seems to think their only job is to evade our constitutional process. That's a real problem uh, for, for America. Listen to Charles C.W. Cook explain this. And to go back to first principles here, this is why we have a Congress. This is why we don't have a dictatorship. Nothing. Nothing we have seen from the Biden administration in the last two months related to this executive order would have been different in a dictatorship. Every decision's been executive. Biden came up with the plan. He determined the details of the plan. And now, because it's attracting criticism and legal challenge, he's altering the plan as he goes. The response to the first lawsuit filed by the Pacific Legal Foundation was to say, oh, we've changed our website. The response to the second was to say, we've made an alteration that will affect millions of people by press release. This is not how law is made in the United States. 
certainly not how law is supposed to be made in the United States, but more and more often, this is how law is made in the United States. It's a massive, massive problem. Do we live in a constitutional republic? What would have been different? To, to ask uh, Charles' question again, what would have been different if this was a dictatorship? What would have been different? He's just doing it. It's really incredible that this is going on, and it seems to be very low on the priority of most Americans. No one seems to care all that much that the president is just overwhelming our constitutional republic by fiat. It's kind of a problem. And the problem with this is it's a more it's partially just a way to overrun the Constitution and partially a political calculation. What Biden and his allies are doing is they're saying that the left wing of their party says we want free hamsters for everybody. There's no constitutional way. And so they push back against their own party and they say, look, everyone thinks we can just give free hamsters to everybody. But that is just not in the Constitution. We don't have the power to do that. We've asked all of our lawyers. They all say we can't do it. Everybody knows we can't do this. Then the left wing of the party continues to ask for it. And eventually they just get to this point where, well, we tried to pass it. We tried to do it. We got our pen. We got our phone. Let's just do it. So they do the thing that they know is unconstitutional. Free hamsters for everyone. And then they take their chance in the courts. Best case scenario, they find some left-wing judge somewhere and they say, yeah, you can absolutely give free hamsters to every citizen. And on the other hand, they get shot down. And that's usually what happens. They've overreached all these times. This is just a small sampling of how many times this has happened. And it gets overturned in the courts eventually. But for them, for the Democrats that don't care about the Constitution, that treat it like a speed bump, this is a win. This is a win for them because what they get to do is then say, we tried to give you a hamster. We tried so hard. We went through this big process to give you hamsters. And then the GOP sued us and these conservative courts overturned our free hamster program over and over and over and over again. They know their side won't blame them. They tried. They tried to do something. They'll get credit for trying. That shows you a little bit about the philosophy underlying the party, that doing something that is known to be unconstitutional and failing at it is actually a positive. Kind of gives you a little preview as to where they would go if they ever got more power than they have. The bottom line here is they look at the Constitution as just this little speed bump on this wonderful road to utopia. But over and over again, the courts are saving us. How long will that go on? We seem to have only one more backstop, the courts. And that's it these days. And if we don't get this thing sorted out fast, that could easily fade away. And then it's going to be an ugly, ugly, ugly drive down a road with even smaller speed bumps. And then eventually those speed bumps get removed. And all of a sudden we're in a totally different form of government. And honestly, if you stop and think about it, doesn't it feel like we already are?
Uh, I love Bespoke Post and their Box of Awesome collections. These are must-have uh, Box of Awesomes. Uh, they, if you don't know what Box of Awesome is, it's basically, first of all, the coolest gift you can give somebody. Uh, Bespoke Post, they partner with small businesses and emerging brands to bring you the most unique goods every month. So no, no matter what you're doing, whatever you got going on, Box of Awesome has you covered from camping gear essentials to travel must-haves and autumn cocktail kits. I got an awesome margarita. Uh, kit got an awesome old-fashioned kit as well really really cool on the travel side a couple really cool travel bags one bag that i don't even know how this thing it zips up you can put a a suit in there and then it zips up into a duffel bag and you can put all the rest of your stuff in there too and it keeps your suit all night i don't even know how it works all i know is it's awesome and that's why it's in the box of awesome take the quiz at boxofawesome.com your answers will help them pick pick the right box box of awesome for you they release new boxes every month across a ton of different categories and each box is valued at around 70 bucks but you only have to pay a fraction of that price plus with each box of awesome you're supporting small businesses 90 percent of everything that comes in your box of awesome is from a small up-and-coming brand free to sign up you can cancel any time skip a month whatever you want get 20 percent off your first monthly box of awesome when you sign up at boxofawesome.com. Enter the code STU at checkout. It's boxofawesome.com. Code is STU. Get 20% off your first box at boxofawesome.com. Code is STU. One of my favorite guests to have on is Brian Riedel. He's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. And since it's October, he's here to terrify all of us. Brian, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks a lot, Stu. Uh, You're quoted in this article from the New York Times, uh, U.S. national debt tops $31 $31 trillion for the first time. And I, honestly, I was a, a bit surprised maybe by the Times article and that it was, I think, pr- took the issue uh, potentially seriously. I mean, it, uh, usually I feel like this stuff gets blown off. No one cares about debt anymore. Uh, no one cares about spending anymore. But this, I took it pretty seriously and tried to put it in perspective, I thought, somewhat fairly. Can you kind of look, give us a look back at our debt and how far it's come and how fast it's it's become $31 trillion. Yeah, the numbers are pretty staggering. Um, You know, even if you just go back to the the 90s when the debt was $3 trillion, uh, now it's $31 trillion. But you don't even have to go back that far. When the pandemic began, the national debt was about $21 trillion. Again, that was just a couple of years ago. It was $21 trillion. We've added $10 trillion in debt in about two to three years, which is which is really remarkable, and we're on pace to add about uh, 16 trillion more over the next decade. I mean, the, these numbers are staggering; they're too big to comprehend. But suffice it to say, we haven't had debt growing this fast since World War II. It really is remarkable, and it's happening at a pace that is is it takes your breath away, even for somebody who t- talks about this a lot. I mean, I I don't I don't hear. Uh, a, a lot of panic about this uh, the way that I think I should. And I would put a lot of conservative shows into this category. I mean, I, I, I feel like conservative shows, conservative media has sort of lost interest in the idea that we should rein in spending except for the occasional big bill that you're supposed to fight against the Democrats. But when there's nobody on the Republican side holding this line, this is exactly what happens. Exactly. This has been a bipartisan problem. I mean, President Trump ran in 2016 on not touching Social Security and Medicare, which are the main drivers of long-term deficits. Under his presidency, just the cost of legislation he signed added $7 trillion to the 10-year deficit estimate. 
This is a bipartisan issue. You have the Republicans and Democrats getting together, being bipartisan, and usually increasing spending. And even right now, there's really no one, even on the Republican side, really talking about the real drivers of long-term deficits. You hear a little talk here and there about waste, fraud, and abuse, which, which matters. But the main drivers, the big reforms that can actually save us from, from the edge of the cliff, you're just not hearing it. You know, I, I feel like, Brian, when I first had you on the show, this show started right before the pandemic. And I remember having you on for the first time. We talked about these big debt numbers, which at the time now are quaint uh, from, from back, back in those days. And one of the things we've always talked about going back years and years and years and years is this idea that if you spend money like this and you're printing it constantly, eventually you have to pay the piper. Eventually you hit some level where inflation starts going through the roof and the economy starts spinning out of control and you're going to have all sorts of problems that you're not going to be able to solve. And then we had COVID. We tried this. We like we just launched ourselves into modern monetary theory without really a conversation. And all of these effects that we were worried about, I think, played out exactly the way that we thought they would. Yeah. I mean, the big issue has been interest rates. For a long time, we were told, don't worry about the debt because it doesn't matter how much we owe if interest rates are really low. If they're only 1% or 2%, we should keep borrowing. We heard that all the time during the Build Back Better debate. You'd be crazy not to go into more debt with such low interest rates. Well, what I was shouting at the time is that the federal government isn't locking in the interest rate long term. They're doing short-term borrowing. And anyone with a mortgage can tell you, you don't make a 30 or 40 or 50 year debt commitment based on short-term adjustable interest rates. So what happened now is in the past week, interest rates spiked again. The Federal Reserve and the market spiked interest rates. And now all of a sudden, even liberal economists said, uh-oh, now that the interest rate is spiking, it's not only gonna affect future borrowing, but the entire existing national debt which was all borrowed on short-term interest rates, is all going to roll over into the higher interest rates. And that means the interest costs on the debt are about to explode. I have to say, I've been warning about this interest rate issue for years, and I hoped I was wrong. Unfortunately, I think I was right. Yeah, I, I think you were as well. And we're about to feel the pain of that. Can, can you kind of walk us through how this works, though, Brian? I mean, like you, you mentioned mortgages. I understand the mortgage thing, right? Like I remember at one point I had an adjustable rate mortgage and like it was always on my mind in the first like I think it was five to seven years. I had to refinance this to lock it in for 30 years because you never knew when the rates were going to go up. I mean, d does the federal government have a, a, a viable option to just borrow this money for 30 years? And if, if they do have that option, why didn't they do it? Just a year and a half ago, they could have locked in a lot of the national debt for 30 years at a 1.8% interest rate. And again, I was screaming, the Treasury should start selling 30-year bonds at 1.8%. You probably can't do the whole debt, but you could do a lot more. And instead, we were told, don't worry about it because interest rates will never rise again at any point in the future. That is literally what I was told. Interest rates will never rise again, ever. So what they did is they continued borrowing short term. In fact, the average maturity of the, of the national debt right now is 62 months. 88% of the debt rolls over in 10 years or less. So that means because the Treasury wasn't selling 30-year bonds, they did a lot of three-month, 12-month, and five-year bonds, 
it means again that when all of the debt comes up for renewal, it's all going to get rolled over into the higher interest rates. And by the end of the decade, the cost is going to be huge. Here's a scary number or two scary numbers. Every time interest rates rise by one point for the government to pay on its debts, it costs two and a half trillion dollars over the decade and 30 trillion dollars in over 30 years in higher interest costs. That's every one point that interest rates rise. I, it's absolutely breathtaking. I, 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 it's, I mean, it's the entire, we just talked about it going to 31 trillion. 1% increase adds on another $30 trillion uh, within 30 years, uh, or over 30 years. Mm-hmm. And where do, I, 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 like, it's just incomprehensible we didn't lock this in. I mean, because the benefit, obviously, to have an, a, what is essentially a, an adjustable rate would be that we're, what, saving some, some money uh, in the very short term. But like, when it's 1.8%, how much could we possibly have saved? I mean, this doesn't make any sense why we wouldn't do this unless we were just inviting a national catastrophe fiscally. Yeah, it was it was insane. I can't justify it. I was screaming from the rooftops for the last two years. Treasury lock in these rates. I was debating liberal economists. I was told, why lock them in at 1.8? They could still fall to 1.4 or 1.2. What if they fall to 0.8? Then we'll look like... You know, then we'll look bad for locking in 1.8. And I was going, rates are going to go up at some point. Economic variables fluctuate. They go up, they go down. 1.8 is not normal. In fact, the federal government was paying a 5% rate as recently as 2008. Before that, they were paying 6 and 7% rates. And long term, really, if rates go over 4% long term, the whole budget models blow up. I mean, really, the entire national debt trajectory we're on requires that interest rates stay below 4%. Otherwise, the costs start to grow uh, exponentially and things start to get really bad. (laughs) This is incredible. I mean, I I feel like we're just looking at this. It's, you know, it's the the typical movie scene where we all kind of see the giant tidal wave coming and that we're just sitting in between these two skyscrapers and just looking up and knowing there's nothing that we can do. I mean, is there... I know the Biden administration isn't going to do it, even if it's available. But is there anything that we could do if if things turned around in 2024 and we had someone who took these things more seriously? Is there any action? Are we getting to this? I feel like we're talking about we're on the left. We're talking about global warming. Have we reached the tipping point here? Well, the first rule of hold is stop digging. And that is. I'm talking to you, Biden administration. Uh, They keep proposing new spending, student loan bailouts when you're in a hole. Stop digging. Second, whatever we can lock into long-term rates that's left, even locking it in now is probably better than the rates we're going to get a year or two from now. So start locking in long-term rates. Then we need to actually start reforming the spending programs, primarily Social Security and Medicare. These programs are projected to run a $116 trillion cash shortfall over the next 30 years. You heard that right. $116 trillion cash shortfall in Social Security and Medicare. They're not fully paid for with your payroll taxes and premiums. We have to start reforming that and reining in spending across the budget. Um, Otherwise, again, the numbers look really bad. This is just, it's, 
I mean, this was bad when we first started talking about this, Brian. But going back years and years and years and years, this was really, really bad. You know, COVID, I think, accelerated it. And we're now the one thing about it is we're starting to feel this a little bit more. I think, you know, the the idea that inflation is hitting the average day, every everyday person, I think at least puts this into focus. Um, Last one here. What are the rates that we're paying now? And do we have any idea what we're going to be paying here uh, on our debt here in the next uh, months to years? Yeah, I mean, the rate has already gone up from about, well, the the 10-year Treasury bond, which essentially tracks where rates are going for the government, has already gone from 1.8 to 3.8. And it's it's probably going to go higher. It could go up to 4.8 or 5. And that's going to be the rate that we're rolling the debt into. And remember, as I said, long term, the entire fiscal trajectory of the federal government depends on rates staying below 4%. And we're about to pass that right now. And so really, you know, cross your fingers and hope that economic conditions allow interest rates to drop long term. Or again, the, the crisis that I've been worrying about will come sooner than we thought. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned uh, each point is what, $30 trillion over 30 years. And you just said it went up two points. Uh, like, this is incomprehensible. There's we, uh, uh, just a note to the control room. Take this interview. Let's run it back on our Halloween episode uh, so we can just terrify everyone before they go out trick-or-treating. Brian Riedel, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Uh, make sure to follow him on Twitter. You can read the article. It's a U.S. Uh, national debt topping $31 trillion for the first time. Brian, you're, you're, you're the last paragraph in this one. That makes you the closer. So congratulations. Thanks so much, Stu. Oh, man, we are screwed. Uh, you know, buying or selling a home, let me let me give you some quick advice on the mortgage. You might want to lock in the rates while they're lower long term. The adjustable rate thing, maybe it works in certain circumstances, but these circumstances, not really the ones that that's designed for. Uh, our homes are our biggest investment, unless you're the government, and that's a lot of responsibility. You need to find a good real estate agent that can save you some money, that can make sure you got the best home, that can make sure you're in a good area with good schools, you want to make sure you go to realestateagentsitrust.com. This is a place that actually screens through the real estate agents uh, that you uh, would be dealing with. They make sure they get the best agent in every market. They do their homework talking to every agent before inviting them to join the network. So you know you got a good one, and they can hook you up. Just give them some basic information, and they'll walk you through the entire process. Go there now, realestateagentsitrust.com. Check it out, realestateagentsitrust.com. Amazing story from justthenews.com. A consortium of four private groups worked with the Departments of Homeland Security and and State to censor massive numbers of social media posts they considered misinformation during the 2020 election. And its members got rewarded with millions of federal dollars from the Biden administration afterward, according to interviews and documents obtained by Just the News. This is the Election Integrity Partnership, began back in uh, in 2020. It's got uh, live again for the 2022 election to give you kind of an idea of what they were doing. When they thought something was misinformation related, they had a staff uh, that worked uh, 12 to 20 hour shifts uh, from September through mid-November 2020. And they flagged more than 4,800 URLs that they claimed were misinformation related. Uh, those, those URLs were shared nearly 22 million times on Twitter alone. So big, you know, important uh, posts during the election time. 
To do this, they brought up, they had tickets formed. These tickets sought removal, throttling, or labeling of content that raised questions about mail-in ballot integrity, um, controversy in Arizona, and election other election integrity uh, issues across the election. The consortium achieved a success rate in 2020 that would be enviable for baseball batters. Platforms took action on 35% of flag URLs with 21% labeled, 13% removed, and 1% soft blocked, meaning users had to reject a warning to see them. The partnership could not determine how many were downranked. This stuff's going on, guys. You know, they've, they've been trying to make sure that information doesn't get to you. That's what they do. And uh, there are reports that not only is the Blaze mentioned as one of the problem sites, but also Glenn Beck by name was uh, mentioned in some of the stuff. Look, this is why we come to you with the humble ask to, if you can, if you're able, to subscribe to Blaze TV. BlazeTV.com slash stew is the place to go to subscribe. If you use the promo code stew, you'll save 10 bucks. And the reason why the subscription part of this business is so important is because it's the thing that protects us. At any point, we could be removed off of YouTube. If that's where you're watching, very well could happen tomorrow. Same thing off of Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all these different companies is very, uh, honestly, it's very, very likely that eventually it will happen. It has happened to many of the hosts here. They've got a home at Blaze TV, blazetv.com slash do. If you could have a home there too, we'd really appreciate it. Check it out, support the cause, give conservative voices a place to actually speak. blazetv.com slash do. The promo code is stew. We talk about the pro-life issue here a lot on this particular program, Uh, but have you ever thought about it this way? Almost one out of every five Americans never have a chance to live outside the womb. Abortion is the leading cause of infant death in the world. Over 63 million babies have been aborted just since Roe versus Wade was enacted, and a lot more are coming, unfortunately, in its wake. The Ministry of Preborn and Blaze Media are partnering to help rescue 50,000 babies from abortion in 2022 alone. They're working to put Planned Parenthood out of business by providing all the things. Planned Parenthood are not just doing abortions. They're doing other things. Well, uh, they're going to be providing uh, not Planned Parenthood, but Preborn going to be providing free ultrasounds to expecting mothers. Now, 80 percent of the time hearing the baby's heartbeat is enough to convince the mother to keep the baby. This is important work. And when she chooses life, you hear this all the time from the left. They're always like, oh, well, I can't believe this. You, you say you want these babies born, but you won't help them afterward. Well, preborn provides maternity and baby clothes, diapers, car seats, counseling, and much more free of charge. That's their level of commitment to the preservation of life. Could there be possibly a more important cause than this? Preborn has a passion to save unborn babies from abortion and see women come to Christ as well. Over the past 15 years, preborn centers have counseled over 450,000 women considering abortion. 188,000 babies have been saved. I ask again, could there possibly be a more important cause? Will you help rescue babies' lives as well? To donate, dial pound 250 and use the keyword baby. Pound 250, the keyword is baby. Or you can go to preborn.com slash stew. Preborn.com slash stew. Welcome to Stu Does the Polls. Yes, we're going to try to do this as much as we can as we lead up to the election. And tomorrow, we're going to have a kind of a review of where we stand 
one month before Election Day. That's how close we are. That's tomorrow's program. Make sure to tune in to that and you can check it out and, and share it as much as possible. We're going to kind of bring the Sue Does the Polls segment uh, to the table as much as we can as we approach the election. And I'm going to give you a, a couple of different things here. Uh, number one, a poll that you may have missed, a poll that has just come out, some sort of important polling information to kind of give you a sense as to where the race stands. And in addition to that, we're going to give it a little rating, whether it's good, neutral or bad. And the idea is not necessarily what that result is showing you, that maybe the conservative is winning. But where's the momentum in this race? Is this a poll that is indicating positive movement uh, for conservatives? Is it a, is a uh, race that is uh, indicating not really much movement at all. It's neutral. It's kind of where we thought the race was. Or is it bad for the conservative candidate, a poll you might be a little scared over? And we'll, of course, dive into some of the details when warranted. So let's just go through a bunch of these states here so you kind of get a sense of the lay of the land as we lead into the election special tomorrow. Uh, In Wisconsin, Ron Johnson is going against Mandela Barnes. This is an important race. Johnson is an incumbent in Wisconsin. Uh, Mandela Barnes is is a candidate that is really being hit hard on his crime stances. He did uh, you know, events with Elon Omar and uh, is very much on the defund the police side of the world. And uh, the latest poll out of Wisconsin, it's been a very tight race. We had it as a toss up last time. Ron Johnson at 50, Mandela Barnes at 48. So Johnson is up by two in this race. And this race right now is trending in a positive direction. Uh, it's a good sort of trend right now. This has been one where you've seen back and forth. This isn't even the best poll you can find with Johnson. You can see him up at four and five points as well. So positive movement in that race for Ron Johnson, an incumbent in a seat, I would argue, Republicans absolutely have to have. They, they can't lose that race. So that's uh, if they're going to have control of the Senate. Very, very important. Over to Missouri, Eric Schmidt is going against Trudy Bush Valentine. That, this race has been a lead for Schmidt for a while, and that lead continues to hold 49 to 38 is the latest poll. Uh, this came out just the other day. Uh, Eric Schmidt up by 11. Schmidt's a really promising candidate. We like him quite a bit. This race, though, a neutral, neutral trajectory right now, where this has been kind of the place this has been, low double digits for Eric Schmidt. Florida has been closer than I would have liked it. It's been one of these situations where you're kind of crinkling your forehead, saying, why is Marco Rubio not running away with this? DeSantis has shown bigger leads. Uh, Right now, Marco Rubio is up 47 to 41 in this race, a six-point lead. Uh, We're going to call this one neutral, although it does seem to be trending in the right direction in Florida. And Ron DeSantis is opening up a much bigger lead than that in the state. In Nevada, real toss-up rate, Adam Laxalt going against Catherine Cortez Masto. Masto is, Cortez Masto, I suppose, is the incumbent in this race in a state where the fundamentals sort of break the Democrats' way a little bit. So you have to be... This is going to be a close one. I will be surprised if this one is not very, very close. Right now, this poll just came out from the Nevada Independent. shows Laxalt with a two-point lead, 45 to 43. Any lead for Laxalt in this race, I consider to be good. And this one I would put into that category, though two points is going to make you super nervous if this is the way this goes uh, as we go forward and get closer to Election Day. Arizona, we have Blake Masters against Mark Kelly. Big debate going on tonight. Mark Kelly is the incumbent in this race, has led the entire time. Masters won the primary and was down by low double digits and high single digits for quite a long time. This race, however, has narrowed significantly. Latest poll from CBS News, 51 to 48. Mark Kelly's lead down to only three 
points. This is a big move, and we've seen several closer polls in this race as we've approached the first debate, and the only debate, I think, that's happening tonight, a huge debate tonight. Uh, and Blake Masters, I think, has an opportunity to kind of introduce himself to the state of Arizona. He's been a guy that, you know, wasn't really well known before this, but he's a smart guy and a pretty good candidate, I think. Now, Mark Kelly has a lot going for him. He's an incumbent. He's a former astronaut. Uh, we all know about the tragedy in his family um, with his wife, a lot of sympathy that, to the family for you know, good reason, obviously there. But can he take a state that is, I think, generally red leaning and win a race in this environment? It's going to be difficult. He's a tough uh, candidate to beat and he's got a lot of money, a lot of money, uh, but only a three point lead right now. This is trending in the right direction. If Masters can have a good debate tonight, this race could change. I, I, I count this one as a good result for Blake Masters. In New Hampshire, this is another interesting race. This is Don Bolduck going against Maggie Hassan. Now, the, the pitch in the Republican primary from the media, there was two candidates that went in. One maybe a little bit more moderate, maybe more quote-unquote acceptable to the media. One that was more uh, con uh, conservative, seen as an election denier in all the media reporting, which is Don Bolduck. He wound up winning that race. And it opened up as an 11-point lead for Maggie Hassan. This race seems to be tightening as well. 49 to 43 is the latest result. A six-point lead for Hassan. This one's going to be a tough one to win. I will be honest with you. I have it leaning Democrat right now, but this is a good result for Don Bolduc as he seems to be tightening this race back to what you would normally think in a state that's purplish like New Hampshire. North Carolina, we have Ted Budd going against Sherry Beasley. This is a race that is maybe as pure a toss-up as we have in this cycle right now, a uh, small lead for uh, Ted Budd, 43 to 42. Obviously, a lot of uh, undecideds in this race, but Budd with a one-point lead. That's about what it's been over the past few weeks. We rate this one as a neutral trajectory right now. This is another one if the Republicans want control of the Senate, pretty much a must win. I would say Ted Budd is the slightest of favorites right now, but it's very, very close. And then we have kind of one of the marquee races we've talked a lot about in Pennsylvania, Mehmet Oz versus John Fetterman. We know Fetterman who came off the stroke. He's having all sorts of problems. And his giant, you know, 15, 16, 13 point lead, those days are, are long gone now. This race has tightened considerably. Oz is by far the better communicator, as almost every human being I've ever met will be a better communicator at this point than John Fetterman. But Oz does have a way with words. He's going to have a debate coming up. Uh, he is kind of, I think people of Pennsylvania are getting uh, familiar with him. This race comes out, Fetterman 46, Mehmet Oz 40. Now, I have this one rated as neutral. That's where I think the the state of the polling has been over the past couple of weeks. It's now mid single digits from before it was double digits. So that's a major tightening. We do have another poll that just came out, this one from the Hill, and is even a better result for uh, Mehmet Oz. Uh, John Fetterman at 45, Oz at 43, only a two point lead. This poll I'm going to rate as very good news for, uh, for Dr. Oz as we get closer to this race. Now again, you're going to have to win a lot of these tight races if you want to take the control of the Senate and you're rooting for the Republicans. This is not going to be an easy path. But you see a lot of this polling was good or neutral at the worst. Not a lot of bad news in that batch of polling. We'll try to keep you updated on this, the gubernatorial races, the House races, everything as we go forward. And remember, the big election special one month to the election happens tomorrow on this program.
Okay, so here's what happened. You know, we have a situation with a president that never seems to know where he is, let alone when he's on the microphone. So he has a lot of hot mic moments. It's hard to hear, but here's what happened with the president. All right, so he basically says no one Fs with a Biden, which is a weird thing to assert. I mean, the evidence against it is overwhelming. First of all, Hunter's laptop, right? Like there's tons of prostitutes that are constantly effing with a Biden on those videos. Uh, Then, of course, you do have uh, his words. He's he's effed by his words all the time. And it does seem to be maybe the president just saw the big Lebowski before the actual press conference. I don't know. We'll never know. It's in Joe Biden's head.